0: The whole human civilization has been built on the idea of taming the world to increase our security, of building things to house and clothe and feed ourselves and hold at bay things that can hurt us, which is another way of saying to reduce the uncertainty in life. Ironically, we've only been able to do that by admitting that we don't know, and then by observing nature to see what we can really figure out.
1: Until I saw the sun, I don't know why I didn't
2: come. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists discuss music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, we'll be talking with Nora Jones about her 2002 hit Don't Know Why from the Grammy-winning album Come Away With Me. And joining us from the world of science is journalist Sean Otto, author of the 2016 book The War on Science, Who's Waging It, Why It Matters, and What We Can Do About It. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Don't Know Why, Embracing Uncertainty in Art and Science. Hello, Nora and Sean. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Hey. Happy to be here. Nora, I chose Don't Know Why as a a song for us to talk about today because your performance, I I think, captures uh, the essence of what Sean's book is trying to get across, and that's that it it is vitally important that we learn to become comfortable with uncertainty. And, And as you sing that lyric, Don't Know Why, the way you deliver it, it sounds to me like you're okay with not knowing the answer. There's no defensiveness, there's no struggle or regret. And I hope to talk about that on on the show. I want to hear from Sean about why that's so important and so vital to how we reimagine science. But before we get there, I I want to talk about your process because I think there's so many parallels between art and science. I want to hear about your your process in the studio, your process songwriting. So th- this song in particular, you recorded in one take. Is that the case?
1: It is. Yeah. A good friend of mine named Jesse Harris wrote the song. Actually, I did not write the song. We were in a band together and I don't think I knew it that well, but it was just one of the songs on the list that we were going to try. And um, it just came out great <laughs> the first time.
2: Is that typical? You just show up and crush it like that? or do you have I mean, to- I'd
1: like to say yes, but it's typical of great recordings Sometimes it takes a few takes to warm into a song or get to know it maybe a little better, but for me the best best recordings I've ever done are very spontaneous and sort of off the cuff right. like that. Yeah.
2: But sometimes is it the case where you really have to tinker with it to kind of get it where you want it?
1: It is. Sometimes that happens and it always exhausts me and there's been a couple times where it came out great, but usually I can hear the (laughs) non-spontaneity in it (laughs) after the fact, but...
2: Like it's being overthought. Yeah, like
1: I feel it. I'm not saying anyone else can feel it, but you know, that kind of energy is is real too.
2: And what about with songwriting? Could you talk about the different ways that it can work?
1: Well, it it can work a lot of different ways for sure. And everybody has a different process, but for me, songwriting is the same way. Stuff that comes quickly and happens quickly, like in the moment... Like that, even if you have to tinker a little bit at another time, when it flows out, almost Mm -hmm. like it comes through you, like you're not even writing the song, it's just coming through you from the ethers. That's always the best song too, (laughs) you know? Go figure.
2: You know, I read that Joni Mitchell said something like, in order to work as a songwriter, it's been very important to her to remain fascinated by the process and maintain a curiosity about it. And I found that to be very encouraging that someone like Joni Mitchell, who was such a, a master songwriter, that she continued to be eluded by the process itself, that it was mystifying, and there was a mystery to it. And, and as you said, that there's a, an ether that you draw from, and I think that's really cool that there's perhaps a collective source that you draw from when when you make anything in this life.
1: Yeah, I do too. I think that is cool. I mean, I know songwriters who sit down every day and go fishing so they say you know for songs and and they don't always expect to write a song a day but you just kind of do a little every day and then every once in a while the lightning will come through but that's not how I do it because I'm just not very disciplined (laughs) but I am very curious I mean I don't think about songwriting all the time but I do have little lines in my head in my notes section, you know, my phone. I used to keep a notebook. And when I have time to sit down and do it, yeah, you got to like follow it to the end. I mean, each song has its own little path, I guess. But sometimes I start with a line and a melody at once. And then once I have that in my head, I can't unmarry the line from the melody, usually, even if it's a lyric I, I don't love it somehow just sticks to the melody and it, because it's heartfelt from the beginning, it almost doesn't matter if it's maybe the most poetic lyric, if that makes sense, because it's coming right through your gut and it, it kind of works, but every song's different. Some start as poems and you add music later, but, but um, usually my process is to just kind of let the lightning strike and then try to capture it, you know, and then, and then work on it from there, but try to capture the lightning first. The worst is if you have an idea and you forget to record it or write it down and then you kind of forget it. But then there's that story of Keith Richards writing satisfaction, right? Right. If he hadn't recorded it, he would have forgot it. But then I've heard other people say, well, it's worth remembering, you will remember it. So I don't know.
2: (laughs) You know, when I first heard that story about Keith Richards, I couldn't help but try and imagine him in a hotel room in the 1960s, with a 1960s size <laughs> tape recorder. I mean that th- that thing had to be half the size of the bed.
1: I know. Like he carried it around with him. What did he have a carrying case? <laughs> did he have yeah. a tape recorder? Tub? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: So, Sean, you know, at, as a journalist and someone who has two feet planted in the the world of science, what's your what's your take on what we've been talking about?
0: I was really grooving to some of your descriptions, Nora, about the creative process because I found them to be really true working as a writer, too. And just kind of the way that things, when they come out organically, they seem so much truer and fresher and how you have to be comfortable kind of pawing around in the dark. And I thought that the way that that is similar to all art, but also to all process of creation, including the creation of knowledge, I think, is uh, is really cool.
2: So both you and Nora favor a creative process that feels more organic or, or heartfelt. So how do we reconcile being creatures who are driven by intuition or our hunches with the importance of becoming more skeptical and cautious at you know, for, for our collective benefit.
0: I think that the kind of having a hunch and following your, your gut, um, scientists do that too all the time, but for them and for artists, I think artists don't end the process just by having a hunch and that's it. You know, they apply a lot of craft and a lot of skill and then they see if it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And scientists, they have that hunch, they have that insight, they have that creative flash, and then they follow it through with experiments and ideas and, and testing. That's how they find out if that hunch is actually leading them in the right direction or not. Because one thing that we found through science is that the majority of the time Common sense is totally wrong and leads us in the wrong direction because we fool ourselves all the time with confirmation bias. It's one of the, it's maybe the number one risk in science is that you're going to make yourself see what you already thought that you would see or want to believe. And we all do that as humans, and science has taught us over and over again to reality check those, those gut hunches, uh, because a lot of times they're wrong. And that's the only way, in fact, that science has helped us to move forward, is to get ourselves out of the picture with testing. And the only way you're going to create something new, and that means you don't edit yourself, you don't inject your own ideas into the process, because all you're doing then is sticking in your preconceptions about how it should be instead of actually seeing what is.
1: Yeah, I think that there is something about letting it out that makes sense. If you edit yourself because you don't like the way it's certain things sounds, and you never put it down on the paper because you think it's stupid or you think, oh, this lyric uh, kind of reminds me of another song, so I'm not even going to bother. Well, it's just like, a scientific theory, right? You're never going to rule it out unless you put it down mm. on paper. What if it's the thing? I've written songs before that started out kind of one way. Maybe I didn't love them yet. Maybe they sounded a little bit too much like another song, but you have to see it through to the end. And then you realize you're in a completely different place. If you don't see things through and you don't follow the little path where where it goes, you're you're not going to find out. If you have a copycat song or if you have a brand new entity.
0: So have you ever gotten to the end and you just kind of followed this path and you have this kind of jangled heap of different stuff and you didn't know where it was going and you still don't really know, but you get to the end and, and then you figure out how to put it all together.
1: Yeah. I mean, usually that's the goal, but I think, you know, sometimes you get to the end and you think, ah, that's cool, but I don't really love it. (laughs) But usually I feel like if you follow your heart, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but if you follow your heart the whole way through, and yes, you use your brain a lot, but you also keep it sort of centered in your heart and your guts, then when you get to the end, whatever kind of weird little thing it ends up being, it's special because you followed it there with the truest of intentions. I'm always just trying to find something and I don't always know what it's going to be.
2: Yeah. And Sean, could you talk more about what you'd mentioned earlier about creativity as it concerns the creation of knowledge?
0: Creating knowledge is very much like creating art or any other creative pursuit. To a really great degree, you're fumbling around in the dark. When you work as a scientist or an artist, feeling your way into something and you don't know if your effort will be fruitful or not. Very much like artists, scientists work and work to learn and sharpen their craft, and they work to get comfortable with the unknown because they're in a daily relationship with it. And embracing not knowing is really the only way you're ever going to find something new. Thomas Jefferson was a scientist and a lawyer. Uh, like Francis Bacon. Uh, and he put a lot of thought into the role of evidence in science and democracy. His three greatest heroes were scientists. And he wrote to a friend in the 1880s and he said, Wherever the people are well informed, they can be trusted with their own government. And that's a really important notion that's gotten more important since then, because in a day and an age dominated by complex advanced science and technology, that means that in order to be able to govern ourselves using democracy, it's incumbent on each of us to embrace and support public education and embrace and support fact-based, evidence-based journalism, and to oppose their alternatives, because an educated public is the only hope we have of retaining a free public.
2: You know, I mean, that's one of the big takeaways for me from your book. You point out early on that the trouble with the way our uh, legislature works is that some huge percentage of our government is made up of attorneys, you know, trial lawyers who are trained to argue to win mm-hmm. rather than look at all the data and try and arrive at a conclusion from that. It's, it's the reverse. And so... That's why whoever's loudest and talks the most usually wins.
1: That's terrifying.
2: Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, and
0: it's or whoever's the most passionately convincing. Mm. Yeah. And that just comes down to the different ways that scientists and lawyers kind of approach questions of fact. Part of it is this thing that you're talking about is this embrace of uncertainty. Because the scientist, in order to be successful, they have to be both conservative in that they have to account for and explain all the known information about something that they're experimenting on in a paper that they write on it. Uh, or they could be shot down and embarrassed and it could cut their career short. But they also have to be totally open to What's new? What's what's the cutting edge? And in order to do that, they have to say, all right, I'm going to put this out there. This is what I think what appears to be happening. But here are the places where our research wasn't able to answer anything. And here are the possible ways that this could be disproved. And then they publish it and they leave it open to anyone in the world who wants to come along and try and knock it down. And a theory in science is only as strong as its falsifiability, as its willingness to be uncertain about its conclusions and allow anyone, all comers, to come and try and rip it apart. And if nobody can, then we have a pretty high degree of certainty that it's true.
2: Did you say something in your book to the effect of the the closest that we can get to facts or the closest we can get to truth is evidence-based claims. Am I getting that right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Because that is independent of all our biases. You know, it's independent Mm -hmm. of our gender identity and our racial and ethnic and uh, political and religious identity and our national identity. All of those sources of bias are stripped out because it's Mm -hmm. open to peer review and it stands open to criticism by anyone. And if it can still hold up, then we have a pretty high degree of confidence that this is objective knowledge. It's not reliant on our subjective right.
2: opinions. I mean, that one of the things that that I found very moving was a a, a quote from Walter Mondale that was on your book jacket, and it says, uh, "He says evidence from science is one of the world's great equalizers because it forms an objective basis for public policy." This book illustrates how central that notion is to forming of modern democracy and how current attacks on science endanger our freedom. Policymakers and voters everywhere would do well to read The War on Science. How's that for a plug? That's pretty great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a great plug. And it's so true. I mean, as we all see today, unfortunately, in this crisis, COVID crisis that we're dealing with where we have political leaders who are really dismissive of and have been dismissive of the evidence. And ironically, here's the United States who's the most scientifically and technologically advanced country in the world and stood to have the best outcome facing this crisis and we're facing the worst Mm -hmm. outcome. And it's because we didn't base policy decisions
2: on the evidence. How do you think it could have gone differently?
0: Oh, well, epidemiologists, scientists, public health experts that were really focusing on these issues knew about this emerging infectious disease in China in late December. And the administration was aware of this and dismissed it. So if the president and his top advisors had listened uh, to what their scientists were telling them and acted on it promptly We could have avoided not all of it for sure, but Mm -hmm. we could have certainly moved quickly to secure the medical supplies we need. We could have worked on uh, making sure that we had the reagents we need in order to have enough testing early enough. There are a lot of preparatory steps that we could have taken to respond to it, but we also didn't have the infrastructure there because the president had gotten rid of several different uh, public health advisors uh, and left uh, half of the science advisors in this administration unfilled, so all of the heads of science agencies there are about um eighty appointments, and only half of them have been filled under the trump administration, uh, whereas you know the Bush administration or the Obama administration had filled all of them within a few months of taking office.
2: Do you have hope that we'll be transformed by this experience in a way that? people will uh, look at science differently or people will uh, take expertise more seriously or give it more weight than a politician that speaks with a lot of bluster and, and bravado that everything's going to be okay? I do, I do. It, all
0: you have to do really is look back at, at history and where we've been. And, you know, if, whenever there's a big challenge, leaders of democracies often co-authoritarian. Um, it's it's just something that happens when the society is kind of unstable and it makes people feel better for a while. But, but afterwards, after the Great Depression, after the 1918 pandemic, I mean, I mean, that produced the greatest generation, right? I mean, people that were really committed to each other and were committed to facts and to the power of science and evidence and to... Uh, collective action to solve problems and they did it through recognizing that if science suggests that we ought to do something in a certain way and if there is a collective cause to a problem maybe you know maybe government's not always so bad Mm -hmm. and maybe government is the best solution uh, to a collective problem so i i'm feeling actually really hopeful because ultimately you can be sure of one thing is that nature wins. I mean, we can think all we want, we can argue all we want, but in the end, nature wins. And I was concerned that nature was going to win by us ignoring the climate crisis until we passed a couple of tipping points and we had uh, methane disruption coming out of the Arctic Ocean and and that might have been introduced a cycle that we couldn't get out of. This is giving us a window. First of all, it's giving us a window in reduced emissions, but also it's giving us a chance to take a step back, to revalue what we care about in life, and to think about science as a force that we exercise love with and not as uh, some enemy that we can disparage.
2: So correct me if I'm wrong, but in what you just said, the way you framed it, the 1918 pandemic that naturally led to our having a new deal and a stronger government and a, a stronger faith in observable evidence. Is that the case? Not directly, because,
0: you know, obviously we, ha- we had to go through, you know, another 15 years before we mm-hmm. really got to the depths of the Great Depression. But that said, 1918, I think, or 1917, I mean, you can put that that time frame you can pin the end of the Gilded Age to pretty much that event and the beginning of a change in public perception towards a more cooperative way of thinking about America.
2: I want that. Me too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So then, when did it start to fall apart? Like, when when did this when did the war on science begin?
0: Really began in. 1979, 1980, with Ronald Reagan talking about how government isn't the solution, government's the problem, <clears throat> and beginning to uh, chip away because he was, has, had an anti-regulatory agenda, and because the public had a lot of confidence in science, the only way to really advance an anti-regulatory agenda is to begin to chip away at that confidence in science. And that started a trend. I mean, the trend had really begun earlier. It it began with probably well, it began even in nineteen, you know, in the in the nineteen twenties with the attacks of the lead companies on science that was showing that lead was bad for your health, and and this growth of what was called industry defense PR, uh, which went through then. Uh, with Rachel Carson and her publication of Silent Spring and all the stuff about DDT and other chemicals that we'd commercialized after World War II. And, you know, these techniques, PR techniques were developed to kind of vilify and discredit her and her science. But they also, that science spurred the environmental movement. Um, And so there's this battle that was really shaping up that it went through public health then and smoking and uh, and it moved from there then into climate change and climate denial.
2: I know, yeah. I remember there was like a substantial chunk of your book that talks about the spin they put on climate change, how I think it was in the late 70s, Exxon discovered that climate change was a very real thing. And I think they were kind of getting out in front of it for a minute, if I'm not mistaken. But then that was quickly turned around in a very well-funded PR campaign began. And, you know, we, we all know where we're at now with that.
0: Yeah, they were. It's actually a pretty interesting story about how it happened. You know, like you said, Exxon was like m- many of the oil companies, they saw this coming. It was pretty clear throughout the 1980s and a very nonpartisan issue. And then during the Clinton presidency in the nineties, this partisanship really became kind of more of the de rigueur and. When the Kyoto Protocol started being talked about, which was supposed to be ratified in uh, the late 90s, that's when Exxon looked around and they were in this war with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia had seen its oil production shrink and shrink and shrink as Exxon and other northern oil companies were building all these expensive offshore oil rigs and saudi arabia was losing money they're running at a deficit and they decided that they were going to much like what we saw just recently between uh, saudi arabia and russia they decided that they were going to get into a price war and they're going to drive the price down by overproducing oil and making it so cheap that exxon and the other northern companies with this expensive production would be driven out of business or at least be badly hurt and that's what they did and so Exxon, in the face of this, scaled back a lot of their heavy investment in science, and they really shifted their focus from funding good science about that and from saying, yes, we know climate change is happening, but we're working to get ahead of it, to creating what was called the global... They they worked with the uh, API, the American Petroleum Institute, to, to hire all these PR experts to create this... Global Climate Science Communications Plan, and the whole thing, if you read it, it was an amazing document. It was all about emphasizing the uncertainty in science and portraying uncertainty as if it were too risky then. If if we're not certain, if we're not sure about this, we can't risk the economy on this idea. And pretty much every notion that they came up with in that plan has been followed to a T since Mm. then and it was very very successful
2: clearly one of the things that i was i was hoping to give you a platform to talk about is not just how we got here where science is is so inaccessible to so many people but you know also what we can do about it and i think for me in around 2016 as this topic of the war on science started to emerge, like it, at least in, in my, you know, just in, in my feed, as it were, I was familiar with climate change denial, but I, I realized that science was something that was very polarizing and was seen as authoritarian to many people. I'd, I'd heard educators talking about like the, the problem of trying to teach by authority. Like, <clears throat> I know this because I've studied it for so many years and you don't, so you're going to listen. Now, one of the things that I got from your book was that science is not this body of facts that we either sign off on wholesale or, or reject altogether. It's, it's a process. And and actually, like, and I was like, like oh, that's right, the scientific method. And um, I can't. I'm not sure I can. Nora, do you remember the scientific method? I don't. <laughs> no. There was an acronym. I remember that that phrase. I, Sean, you want to throw us a rope here? Oh boy,
0: I, I I don't think I can tell you what what acronym you might have been taught. Yeah, I feel I feel dumb now.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'm ill prepared. There was something about. Uh, experimenting, there was a hypothesis, not in that order. Oh um, yeah, okay,
1: I remember right?
2: this. And then there is a conclusion somewhere at the end. So
0: I can talk to you about what it is. I don't know the acronym that you're referring to, but mm-hmm. and a lot of people approach the scientific method slightly differently. There's no one method, but there's it's kind of a collection of strategies that have proven effective in answering questions about what's going on in nature and how things really work As opposed to how they might appear to work to our quote unquote common sense, which is usually the least common and the least sensical. So, one is start asking a question how do plants grow? Or, you know, how do viruses work? And just really, you know, embracing that spirit of non defensive, I don't know why that you know, Nora sings so well in her song. Then once you have that, once you're coming from that place, that non-defensive ignorance and asking, embracing that and asking a question, then you kind of say, okay, because I've looked at nature and I wonder what's going on, I'm going to suggest a hypothesis, possible explanation. And then that hypothesis has to be structured in kind of a way. And so that now we start getting a little bit of form or shape to Science versus just kind of making a guess. And what it is, is a hypothesis has to make kind of a risky prediction. And that if it's true, it might confirm our guess or our conclusion. But if it's false, it will show that we are totally wrong. It'll destroy our prediction. So that's kind of like the acid test of science. And if you can't prove that something's false, then you're not really doing science. So, you know, saying plants grow because God wills it, for instance, that's a statement of faith, not a statement of science, because it's Mm -hmm. not limited to the physical world, and it can't be disproved. So it can't really be tested, so then it's not science. So then, after we lay out the hypothesis, commit to it, then we think of what the possible ways are that we could test it, and we run through those experiments, and then we publish what we find out. And Interestingly, in science, a lot of times it's what we find out about how we were wrong that actually tells us more than finding out that we're right. If we find out we're right, it's like, hmm, okay, I guess that was that was it. Uh, at least that's what it appears to be. But if we're wrong, it rules that whole area out, and it opens up a lot of different exp- exploration about different paths that it might be uh, and showing that is not what it appears to be. So that usually means it's something more subtle, and probably more powerful is going on and more exciting. So then after we do that, we do all these tests, then we publish it, and we say, okay, everybody, take a look at this and try and rip it apart. And try and do it yourself, see what you think. That's called peer review. And if it survives that process, then we uh, can rely on it. And we come to rely on it more and more, the more often other people cite it. Or the more often other people try to challenge it, so that's kind of the scientific process, and it 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 does involve, like you said, like you hit on right away, both of you, starting with a hypothesis and and testing it.
2: So it's extremely tedious. It's granular work for sure. Right? I think that's why there's so many parallels between art and science is because it takes a long time to create things. How how do we get people more comfortable with with a drawn out process? Like what practical steps can we all take to try and, I don't know, turn this ship around culturally?
0: Yeah, there's a lot that a lot of different people are working on. One of them is really rethinking how we teach science and not presenting it or teaching it as conclusions, as like a package with the, you know, all wrapped up with a bow and and this is what it is, or as facts, but opening up the process
1: like trying to convince people psychologically, like coaxing them to believe it? You well, mean? people
0: people are naturally scientific. I mean, if you think about it, they look around them in the world and they see little bits of evidence and they form conclusions from that. So people yeah. are smart. And if we just open up the process so that they can see how things work and how you might come to this conclusion, then they'll form the conclusion on their own, and then they can own that. And that's so much more powerful uh, than just telling them the way that it is and asking them to regurgitate it. Now, is that Mm. a lot more expensive, a lot more challenging? For sure it is, but we're living in a time when advanced science and advanced tech is basically controlling or driving every single challenge that we have to deal with in our government. So if we're going to continue to survive as a democracy, I think we kind of have to make that level of investment. So that's one. And and another thing that people can do, like you and me, like every day, there's so much heavy pressure on journalists and on media to present, quote unquote, both sides of an issue when a lot of times one side is supported by science and the other side really is not and big money vested interests will put pressure on them to uh, say argument is good and present both sides and when we see that you know that's what scientists call false balance where you know you'll see on fox news say which they do this a lot where they have a climate scientist on one half of the screen and and some climate denier on the other half and that gives the false sense that there's this debate going on where there really isn't pretty much every scientist in the world that knows anything about the climate system understands what is happening. It's the most researched thing outside of the theory of evolution at this point, with billions and billions and billions of data points supporting it. There's just no denying it. But they have been able to create this false sense by playing with the media's idea that the media have to be fair and balanced instead of that the media really needs to speak truth to power. So if you see that kind of false balance going on, call those people up, you know, call up the news director at the TV station or write a letter to the editor, to the publisher or the editor and put pressure on them and make them feel embarrassed by what they're doing. Um, Because you can bet the other side is doing that and they Mm. need that counter pressure to have the confidence to actually do good work.
1: Yeah, it's just hard to get information you can trust, especially right now, you know, in week seven of this pandemic that's happening. Even this very important thing that we're all dealing with. I talk to, you know, several people a day who have completely different information based on what they're reading, what they watch, who they're talking to. Completely different information. So,
2: like, what's what are the different ends of the, the info spectrum in in how you, how it's coming to you?
1: Well, you know, the you can quarantine for two weeks and then you're fine if you don't have any symptoms. Oh no, but there's all these people now that are showing that are asymptomatic. And I, now, granted, some of this information's just coming in mm-hmm. because it's all new, right? But the information's not getting to everybody in the right way. I have a friend who's been sick for four weeks now with fever. So a lot of it just doesn't make sense yet. doesn't seem like people are hearing all the same things, you know?
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I was listening to Jane Goodall was on the, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast the other week and, and because, I mean, she works tirelessly, you know, I mean, she's well into her eighties and she travels like 300 days a year and she does it so that she can reach people directly. And, She's learned not to be very combative, I think, because she's often meeting with heads of states and, and politicians and lobbying them for her various causes. And she's found that change has to come from within. So you don't you don't get someone to change their way of thinking by raising your voice or, or telling them they're wrong because then they're, they're just going to shut down. So I'd like to hear from you what are some ways that you can – practically engage with someone who doesn't agree with you on something for which there is like a tremendous amount of evidence. I have in, in North Brooklyn, I overheard a couple of my neighbors, they were bitching about how you know Obama just bought a shoreline property on Martha's Vineyard if climate change is that big a deal why is he buying shoreline property and the rest of us have have got to live by these different standards like these are these are people that I I like and I engage with them otherwise I mean how if if I were to engage with someone with whom I do not agree and there's what what is it like 9 out of 10 scientists can all agree that climate change is a and very imminent threat you know, because it's, it's worth it to have these uncomfortable conversations. But what do you do?
0: Yeah, it's actually at this point, well over 99% of people who are practicing or publishing in any way related to any of the many, many fields that have to do with our natural ecosystems that understand what's happening. But what you do, to answer your question, the best thing is to take a couple of tools from couples therapy. Um, <laughs> first... The first thing to do is to know where you stand and understand where you stand. And One of the best places to go for that is a website called skepticalscience.org. What that has is it lists all the most common denial arguments around climate change. And then next to those denial arguments, it gives you the actual science and, and really kind of soundbite form but it's all linked to primary sources so you can actually find out the real information if you want to so understand what the common things are that people say and where you feel about that Uh, and then when you go into a conversation with your crazy uncle eddie or your nutty you know aunt jane or whatever it is i mean we're not going to be having those thanksgiving maybe we'll hopefully we'll have one of those uncomfortable thanksgiving dinners coming up but (sighs) but then go into that using those tools from couples therapy, which is understanding that people argue what they believe from an emotional standpoint first, and then they seek the information that supports how they feel. And the best way to to deal with that then isn't to go into a relationship with your spouse or, or argument with your spouse or an argument with your best friend over climate change and to say you're wrong or you're stupid. I mean, that's not going to get you anywhere. The best thing to do is to start by asking them why they feel that way and what they really perceive about it. And And really, really listen. When they say something, mirror it back to them then and say, so what I hear you say is that, you know, you think that because Obama bought this land, therefore it was, it's probably, you know, a hoax or something like that. Have I got that right? Check in with them, make sure that they acknowledge that you have heard them. And that does wonders, first of all, for relieving the tension because Finally, they feel like you've heard them, you've acknowledged their point of view. And then you can say, I can see why that would make you feel a certain way. You know, it might be anxious or upset because, uh, you know, who, who wouldn't, you know, be upset if their leaders were actually working with two different agendas. But are you open to hearing me tell you about why I believe what I believe about it? And because you've already taken the time to honestly, not manipulatively, but honestly listen with them, connect with them emotionally, hear them and respond, you've got kind of a transaction going here, emotional transaction. Most times they're going to be willing to listen to you too. And you can begin then to open up a dialogue. And I've done that successfully, even in public forums with deniers, engaging in a dialogue not seeking to shame them or embarrass them, but engaging in a dialogue, and I've actually gotten them to move a little bit. And you're not gonna get somebody to cave on their position all at once, Mm. but if you can get somebody to connect with you emotionally about this, they're gonna think twice the next time they hear some BS angry talking point that's just designed to rile them up. They're going to begin to be a little bit more skeptical about it because you'll have given them a reason to.
2: Mm, That's helpful.
1: It's a helpful way to argue. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great answer.
2: No, it is. As you were explaining that halfway through, you know, I was extremely cynical and I was thinking, "Yeah, but they're still going to think that I'm a pompous, patronizing member of the coastal elite." But towards the end, there, I think the emphasis on emotional connection, and we're not talking about. I mean, sure, okay. I guess we are talking about manipulating someone, but yeah, but
1: you could be talking about it to the other side as well. It's the same. It's just about how to get your point across. True. I don't think it's manipulative. Right. Yeah. I think
0: it's. Just, I don't think it is either. I think it's it's emotional connection and it and it's
1: it's an exchange that needs to happen. So I mean, I hear you Then you think it's manipulative.
0: <laughs> oh, that's you're so good, Nora.
2: <laughs>
1: Did you get what I was doing? I was trying to do it. I
2: know that was really good. (laughs) Thank you. I feel heard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very good. Well, this has been great, gang. I really appreciate you coming on for this.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. It's been really great. I really enjoyed talking with you.
2: Be sure to keep an ear out for Nora's forthcoming album, Pick Me Up Off the Floor, due out June 12th on Blue Note Records. Keep an eye out for Sean and check out his book, The War on Science. He continues to talk to audiences worldwide about the critical role of science in maintaining free societies and about how it is under threat and what we can do about it. Special thanks to Panoram for our music and to Chris Villapeg at Songlock for technical support. Sing for Science is co-produced by The Talk House. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks so much for listening.